0: This evening's talk uh, is called "reactive or responsive?" Question mark. And perhaps for the for a few moments, we can just um, reflect, or perhaps more importantly, allow ourselves to uh, to sense or to feel the difference between those two ideas. What does it mean to be reactive? Do we think of that as a good thing? Desirable or not? And what does it mean to be responsive? What different tones do those terms carry? To be reactive or to be responsive? In some ways they cover the same broad area of experience. They are how we go out to the world. We react to it. We respond to it. But also, of course, it refers to how we relate to our own subjective experience. Do we react to what's? coming up in our minds when we meditate, or do we respond to it? And I want to reflect uh, during this talk on how we might uh, use meditation as a means to get clearer about that distinction, and particularly to see how we might use that distinction as a way of of getting some insight, some understanding about what we're doing here. I feel that this language uh, gets quite to the heart of what it means to practice, whether we as Buddhists think of that as practicing the Dharma or whether in more general more secular sense, um, what it means to be a practicing human being, to live our lives uh, as a practice, as something that we are consciously engaged with, rather than just sort of running along with uh, unreflectively. It has, therefore, I think, to do with what Socrates calls the examined life. Remember, he says, the, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think what we're doing here and what the Buddha and many other philosophers and teachers have, have explored is how do you lead an examined life? In other words, a life that is far more conscious, self-aware, and committed to certain values, And the value that I feel that we might consider as the, as the overarching value in this practice is uh, what I would translate as care. How do we care for ourselves? How do we care for our soul? How do we care for others? How do we care for the sick? How do we care for the world, the planet, the environment? Again, a word that is widely used, a word that we probably would all identify with. We like to think of ourselves as being caring. But like most of these core ideas, if you're asked to to define what it means... You know, what, 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 what do you mean, caring? We're often not so readily able to offer a, a very clear answer. It's a feeling. It's a very important feeling, perhaps, but one that in some ways calls out for further definition, further clarification, perhaps a more enriched language so we can talk about it and I feel that the practice of what we're doing here is essentially a practice of learning how to care. The Buddha used a metaphor for care. He said it was like the footprint of the elephant and just as the elephant's footprint is able to contain within it the footprint of all other animals in the jungle. So to care was the virtue that was able to include within it all other virtues. The Buddha's final words, at least in my translation, would come out as, Things fall apart. Tread the path with care. So I'm going to take this idea of care and think of it within the framework of reactivity and responsiveness and try to uh, tease out how we might practice and cultivate and develop this care. Care is the big picture. Care is what we do when we practice. And it involves paying attention. It involves uh, cultivating kindness and equanimity and mindfulness, concentration, all of these terms that we hear about um, on retreats such as this. And yet, they're all somehow, I feel, subsumed in this uh, vision of trying to lead a life uh, that is caring, that cares. I would uh, suggest that we could understand the Four Noble Truths as a way of um, disentangling what we might mean by care. It's also striking that in the discourses, the early discourses of the the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths are also spoken of as the elephant's footprint. So there seems to be a quite explicit overlap between these four truths and the practice of care. Now those of you who have read my books, I heard my talks, are aware that I'm not so comfortable with the language of uh, noble truths. And again, I don't think it fits so naturally when we think of caring and then we suddenly think of truths. We seem to have shifted from an ethical idea into something more approaching ontology, the nature of reality, what is true, what is real. So I prefer to think of the Four Noble Truths as four great tasks, which is, in fact, how at the conclusion of the Buddha's first discourse, he does, in fact, describe them. In other words, the the practice of the Dharma involves uh, four uh, primary activities the first one is to embrace life the second is to let go of craving or what I would prefer to say reactivity the third is to uh, is to behold experience the stopping of craving or reactivity and the fourth is to cultivate a way of life, uh, traditionally called the Noble Eightfold Path. And if we think about it, we might be able to understand care as the um, performance of these four tasks, that care can then be broken down uh, into four Distinct uh, functions or actions. Uh, We care by embracing life, that seems to follow. Uh, We cultivate care by letting go of our habitual reactive patterns. We cultivate care by learning to dwell in a non reactive space. And perhaps most importantly, We cultivate care by cultivating a way of life that embraces all aspects of our humanity, from how we see the world and think about it, from how we speak, act, work, apply ourselves, pay attention, and focus our minds. So let's consider how... This fourfold task is a, just a rather more um, a, a rather more detailed way of describing what it means to care. But in order to to tr- to, to, to translate this rather theoretical picture that I've sketched into a more practical um, examination of what we're doing here on a meditation retreat, I think we need to, first of all, just for a few moments, think about the very uh, basic uh, structure of the experience that we're having right now. And again, I'm following, although I'm not going to get into any technical terminology or Pali terms here, but I'm following uh, the basic uh, principles that underpin what is loosely called Buddhist psychology. Buddhist psychology is really a way of understanding the structure of experience in such a way that it serves as a framework for practice. I don't think the Buddha was interested in uh, getting an exact representation in words of what experience or reality is or is like. He was a pragmatist. He was concerned with how we live, how we uh, relate to one another, how we relate to ourselves. He was concerned with how we might uh, come to flourish more fully as persons, as communities. In other words, his primary emphasis, I feel, uh, was on ethics. How do we live an ethical life? An ethical life would be one that is characterized by care, and that care is understood as being... uh, uh, as being defined in terms of these fourfold, uh, these four tasks or this fourfold task. So let's just for a moment come back to what goes on um, when we sit here or we walk outside and we pay attention to the experience that is happening in that moment Uh, without getting into too much detail (coughs) this we can understand as um, an experience a conscious experience that is uh, constantly being um, prompted or triggered by an encounter with an environment in other words we go outside we walk up and down in the garden, and our senses are impacted by what we see, the trees and the sky and the clouds, what we hear, the call of the birds, the rustle of the wind in the trees, Uh, what we feel or what we touch, let's say, the sensation of heat or wind on our skin, what we smell, what we taste, Uh, the contact of our feet with the ground. In meditation, we seek to become increasingly intimate with this uh, fundamental experience of being alive. And this is no different whether we are at home working at a desk or whether we are sitting on a cushion here observing our breath the same basic uh, facts are going on. We're constantly being um, impacted by data, sensory data, that trigger uh, a certain inner experience. Of course, we're also, and this is why in Buddhism they speak of six senses, we're also being impacted by what rises up within us, emotions and feelings and thoughts, images, memories, plans. These things also, as it were, come at us, impact us, and trigger an experience. And that experience is then um, broken down um, in three ways. Experience is, all, is something that always feels a certain way. And that feeling is understood along a spectrum that extends on the one hand from ecstasy to the other hand uh, agony or pleasure, pain, and everything in between. So at every moment, if we are asked, how do you feel, we can probably, say, locate ourselves somewhere along that spectrum. We feel great. We feel okay, We feel, well, neither one nor the other, really. Or we feel slightly depressed or sad um, or maybe downright miserable. But we feel a certain way. That's one aspect of experience. And we'll be coming back to this. Uh, Certainly, Martin will touch on this as we go through the week. But the point is, it's an attempt to uh, shed light on a fundamental aspect of human experience. It feels a certain way. The next aspect of experience is that it makes sense in a certain way. Um, In other words, what we experience is not just a random set of colors and shapes and sounds and sensations, but it is already organized in such a way that when we walk into a room, for example, like this, we see windows and we see a ceiling and we see the floor and we see a bell and a microphone and we see Stephen or Martin sitting at the front. It's all... um, it's it, it's it's already loaded with meaning. Again, this is so obvious that it feels strange to point it out. But this is a a very crucial aspect of experience: is that it makes sense. It's not chaotic, meaningless, but it is meaningful already, and that meaning is not something that's coming from the world. It's something that we have invested in experience already. Like, for example, if I have a big Chinese ideogram behind me on the wall, um, unless you know Chinese, it'll just look like black and white squiggles. If you do know Chinese, you'll immediately see it as as meaning something means mind or house or man or woman same with english the squiggles are already pre-loaded with meaning when they come to us we don't have to think the meaning's already there and likewise when we meet someone we know or someone we recognize we that person appears to us uh loaded with meanings and associations and affections or fears or whatever it might be. So that's the other primary aspect of experience. It makes sense to us in a certain way. And this too is important. A lot of meditation practice has to do with uh, paying attention to features of experience that we tend to overlook or deny or ignore. And so we learn to... uh, to, in a sense, render experience, um, or, 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 or in a sense, apply to experience, uh, meanings that are uh, helpful in sustaining and developing our practice, like paying attention to impermanence, and dukkha, and so on. But the third aspect of experience, which is the one I want to look at this evening, is that not only does our experience feel a certain way and make sense to us in a certain way, it also inclines us to react or respond in a certain way. Uh, When something (coughs) appears to us, when something happens, um, it somehow primes us to think about it or want to say something about it or want to do something about it. In other words, we're we're organisms that are primed to act. And we notice this, I think, very clearly when we just try to stop and be still and pay attention to what's going on. We notice our experience. It feels a certain way. It makes sense to us in a certain way. And the mind is almost obsessively caught up in either habitual or conscious reactions and responses. I like this, I want this, I don't like this, I don't want that. Uh, What does that mean? Uh, I'd like to get to know that person. Don't like that one. Um, A kind of constant monologue that runs through our head, that is an almost continuous uh, reflection and calculation on what does this mean for me? What can I do with it? And the origins of this are presumably uh, biological, evolutionary. Uh, This is very central to how we uh, prime ourselves for, in the most basic sense, survival getting out of the way of whatever might threaten us, and um, acquiring uh, possessing whatever might enhance and support our existence, our life. So this is where we get into the distinction between reaction and response. Uh, We notice in meditation very easily Um, How certain feelings, certain perceptions, certain recognitions of what's going on uh, trigger automatically um, a strategy uh, to, to either get something or to get rid of something that's narrated to us through our thoughts and prompts us, although it's not always in meditation, you're kind of stuck. Sitting on a cushion, you can't go out and do what you want to do, but you put that into storage and you think, well, when I have the next opportunity, I'll go and do that. So this is, I feel, admittedly, a very, a very rough sketch, but nonetheless, I think one that I found helpful in negotiating the terrain of Dharma practice. In other words, you know, what do I do in this situation? How do I live? How do I care? How do I uh, find meaning in life? We could argue that Dharma practice has to do with training oneself to respond wisely and compassionately uh, to our experience instead of reacting, often mindlessly, or with minimal attention from our attractions, our fears, our dislikes, and our confusions. So we could see the practice of the Dharma, the practice of caring, is cultivating quite consciously um, a response to experience as opposed to simply giving in to habitual reactive patterns. And the practice therefore is about uh, opening up and sustaining and learning to dwell in a spaciousness or a space of awareness that provides us with a freedom to choose whether we respond to choose not to react mindlessly, to cultivate a relationship with life that uh, aspires to realize what we value as good. And it's in that sense that the practice, even the, the quiet subjective reflection in meditation has necessarily an ethical quality to it. I've given up the idea quite a while ago that the practice of meditation or the Dharma is about um, a way to discover the nature of truth or reality. I don't think that really is the issue at all. But it's rather about cultivating an, an inner space, a still, clear space, that enables us to respond wisely, caringly to life and to free ourselves from the force of habitual patterns of behavior that are dominated by greed, by hatred, and by confusion. So now I've introduced this word dharma. Again, a term that is um, ubiquitous in the Buddhist world, a term I suspect most of us are quite familiar and when we read this word in a book um, we nod sagely and assume that we know what it means. But like care, if we're asked, what does Dharma mean? We're often a bit stumped. So to give a clue as to what it might mean. I'd like to read a a short discourse. It's actually a dialogue between the Buddha and a man called Sivaka. Sivaka is a wandering ascetic of some kind at the Buddha's time. We don't really know anything about him. But um, on two occasions in the canon, Uh, he approaches the Buddha and asks him a question. And this time he comes to the Buddha and he asks him the following question. He says, You talk of a clearly visible Dhamma. In what respects is this Dhamma clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise? Now, this phrase is uh, probably a very old uh, working definition of dharma. And it's describing it not in terms of its, sort of, of its own essential qualities. It's describing the dharma in terms of how a human being um, encounters it. In other words, it appears as clearly visible, as immediate as inviting, as uplifting, and as personally experienced by wise people, not, and this is worth emphasizing, not personally experienced by the Buddhists. Sivaka is not a Buddhist. It's to do with the wise. So this arguably doesn't shed a huge amount of light on what the Dharma is, but I'm not even sure that's even an intelligible question, but it's more a question of how this term um, is used as a core indicator of how to practice. So, Sivaka asks, in what way is the Dharma clearly visible? That's the point he's most interested in. And the Buddha replies by saying, let me ask you a question, Sivaka. And you respond to it as you see fit. What do you think? When there is greed within you, do you know, oh, there's greed within me? And when there is no greed within you, do you know, oh, there's no greed within me? And Sivaka says, yes. Now, again, this is indicative of the Buddha's teaching method. He's not uh, imposing a definition or an answer on the questioner. He's not saying, oh, I'll well, see if I know what the Dharma is, da 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 He says, no, I will ask you, and then you respond in a way that's according to your experience. <coughs> This is very close, I think, to the Socratic method. Uh, Socrates very often teaches through dialogue by asking questions of his students and getting them to come up with the answer. It's called the meiotic approach. Meiotic means in the manner of a midwife. In other words, the, the task of the teacher is not to impose knowledge on the student, but to draw knowledge and understanding from the student. You see this in Zen Buddhism a lot, in the koans, the classical koans. The teacher is is, is shocking and uh, forcing and prodding and probing the student, such that the student comes up with the insight. So, Sivaka is asked, you know, when, uh, do you know when you're greedy and when you're not greedy? And Sivaka says, yes. And then the Buddha asks, uh, with hatred and confusion and those qualities of mind associated with greed and hatred and confusion, when they're within you, do you know that they're within you? And when they're not within you, do you know that they're absent? And Sivaka says yes. And then the Sutta, the discourse, comes to its uh, conclusion, and the Buddha says it's in this way, Sivaka, that the Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, and personally experienced by the wise. Now, What's going on here? The Buddha is identifying the Dhamma, um, clearly not with greed and hatred and delusion. But he's pointing out, or he's enabling Sivaka to know, uh, to acknowledge that Sivaka already knows what it's like not to be greedy, not to be hateful, and not to be confused. There are moments in his life, and remember Sivaka is just a a cipher here for every man, for you and me, the the, the average Joe or Mary on the street. We're all Sivaka, and to that extent, um, we already know the Dharma. The Dharma is already clearly visible to us. It's immediate in the sense that we don't need to go through a series of steps or stages to arrive at it at some distant point in the future. It's right here and now. It's inviting. It's somehow already appealing. It's already calling out. It's already drawing us in some way. It's uplifting. It's a quality of our experience that is somehow affording us a certain dignity and it's a quality that wise people from all different walks of life and traditions intuitively understand. Now what this is pointing to is what Buddhism calls Nirvana. Nirvana is classically defined as the ending of greed, of hatred, and confusion. In other words, uh, those moments in which those reactive patterns are not happening. They may have, you know, they, they may overwhelm us for large hunks of time, but we also have experiences Um, whether we're Buddhists or not, or we're enlightened or not, in which we experience our lives in a way that's not determined by what we want and what we don't want and what we're confused about and everything to do with me and mine. That we're already uh, beings who intuit this non-reactive space this caring quality that can afford us another perspective on our lives, can afford us um, a possibility of an ethical relationship, one that's not driven by getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't like. So already here we have the Experience of what I'm calling uh, responsiveness or the possibility of responsiveness as opposed to uh, reactivity and the possibility of reactivity. So if we come back to that earlier. account of experience of it feeling a certain way, making sense in a certain way, and inclining us to react, respond in a certain way, we can begin to see that uh, what this uh, practice is about is becoming clearer about this uh, choice, really, this possibility, to respond to life with care as opposed to react to life out of blind uh, conditioning and habit. And that possibility is grounded in this still open space of awareness that uh, is not conditioned by what we want, what we don't want, and what we're confused about. And that is called nirvana. Nirvana, if you think of it as some mystical attainment or some uh, highly uh, elevated state of saintly perfection, then put that idea aside. Here we have uh, an account of nirvana as something that is already imminent within the experience you're having right now, all of us. Mindfulness, meditation, as we're doing here, is really a practice in which we, for a sustained period of time, in this case a week, we seek to, uh, on the one hand, recognize this uh, responsive as opposed to reactive space, in which we seek to become more and more familiar, and by that I mean we learn to feel what it's like to be non-reactive, to be spacious, to be still. And importantly, not to think of that as the goal of the practice. That's not the goal, that's actually arriving at the starting point. The practice is when we then move to think and speak and act and work and so on. So what we're cultivating is a non-reactive spaciousness of mind. and although we're on the first day of a retreat and we might have been sleepy and groggy and restless and distracted and our minds taken over with all kinds of worries and anxieties and so on, there may have been moments, maybe sustained moments, where all of that sort of goes into abeyance, it's suspended, it stops for a bit, and we find ourselves in this still, clear, space that's also very much embodied. It's felt, it's sensed, it's personally, how does the translation go, personally experienced by the wise is how it's been translated, but the word for experience here is the same word as as for feeling. It's personally felt or sensed by the wise. It's something we feel in our bodies. But again, this is often a very fleeting feeling and something we may not pay a huge amount of attention to. So the practice here is very much about consciously valorizing uh, that that (coughs) sense, that feeling of non-reactiveness, of responsiveness, of stillness, of openness, and that's what it means in a way to cultivate or to develop a practice. So in other words, experience feels a certain way, it makes sense in a certain way, and it inclines us to engage with the world or with ourselves in a certain way. And that engagement can be reactive, and that engagement can be responsive. But again, we must be careful here not to think that reactive means spontaneous and responsive means stepping back and calmly and wisely considering what to do and then making a measured and well-judged response to the situation. I think these words might suggest that to some of us. But of course, responsiveness can be just as spontaneous as reactivity. There's nothing inherently good or bad about being spontaneous. But we can see how spontaneity can be both something that we would admire in, let's say, the work of an artist or the work of someone who is spontaneously uh, generous, spontaneously kind, spontaneously tolerant. Whereas we perhaps don't so much admire a person who is spontaneously angry, or fearful, or greedy, or jealous, or selfish. So it's got nothing here to do, essentially, with spontaneity, that we find ourselves in situations in life, whether or not we consider ourselves to be spiritual or whatever it might be, but just in a purely human sense that we find ourselves occasionally in situations where it might be a very challenging situation. Maybe somebody's shouting at us. Uh, Maybe someone's threatening us. And we surprise ourselves sometimes that we don't react with fear. But we respond, let's say, with with tolerance, with kind-heartedness, with wisdom. In other words, these virtues that we uh, speak of in in the Dharma or in in other uh, ethical traditions are not foreign to us. They're already qualities that we respect and admire and witness in the lives of those people we hold in high esteem. And we witness it in ourselves, in our friends, in our families, in our colleagues. It's a deeply human quality here. And it's in this sense, I think, also that I like to to use the term secular Buddhism. Uh, There's nothing inherently spiritual or religious or elevated or special here. These are basic human qualities. Whether or not you self-identify as a spiritual or a religious person of any kind. And I'm often humbled, I must admit, um, in ordinary life situations in the world where I strut around with all my Buddhist thoughts running through my head. And I'm often um, very humbled by how so-called ordinary people respond with kindness and tolerance and patience in situations where I feel myself getting quickly out of control. So I think the question I'd like to somehow leave you with is how do you tell the difference between uh, a compulsive reactive behavior or thought or feeling and a spontaneous compassionate or kind responsiveness? What does the difference feel like? The Buddha gives us some clues. Uh, For him, reactivity, which is often translated as craving, I mean, there's clearly a strong element of that involved. One of the characteristics of of craving is that it is repetitive. It just keeps on going round and round and round and round and round. It doesn't actually go anywhere. It seems to be somehow invested simply in its own It's own survival, as it were. And again, I think we see this in meditation, that often we get stuck in a very compulsive thought that we can't get out of, whether it's a a worry, whether it's a fantasy, whether it's a a desire or fear. It kind of gets hold. Um, Jung called these, autonomous complexes within the psyche that was his definition of a neurosis autonomous complex in other words they they seem to have an autonomy of their own like a worry it gets hold of me and it won't let go and i can't just shrug it off it's got me in its grip it's compulsive it's repetitive yet that's not how we'd think let's say of generosity or kindness, or wisdom. These seem to be responses that are going out into the world, uh, engaging with a situation uh, that is unknown, or unclear, or open-ended. There's a path opening out, not just a repetition of the same. Reactivity, he also describes as indulgent, obsessively indulging in this and that. Again, we might be familiar with this, uh, how we get hold of some idea, some image, some memory, and we just kind of chew away at it like a dog with a bone. We just gnaw away at it. We just kind of keep on digging in which suggests that responsiveness is not indulgent. It's not sort of gnawing away at something, but it's somehow a giving away. It's a releasing of ourselves into the situation, responding to it as different needs arise. I think another feature of reactivity is that it's very often colored, with fear and anxiety, we're worried, we're anxious, we're insecure around wanting something or not getting it or disliking something and fearing it or being preoccupied with my self image and being worried that it won't hold up in the eyes of others. So reactivity seems to be uh, colored in many ways by I fear, where responsiveness seems somehow freed from that. It might be anxious as to the result of the task or the what I'm going to say, but it has the courage to risk doing that. It's not held back by anxiety and worry. And I think also reactivity tends to be uh, very self-centered, very egotistic, very selfish. Whereas responsiveness tends to be less preoccupied with what are other people going to think about me? What's in it for me? There's more of a a willingness to somehow go beyond one's self-interest. There's a transcendent element there. As practices, Craving, or reactivity, is to be let go of. That's the second of the four tasks. Whereas responsiveness is to be cultivated and developed. So the second task is to let go of reactivity. The fourth task, formally translated as the cultivation of the path, Responsiveness is to be cultivated, it's to be nurtured, developed, matured in some way. So, if we put it into the, the context of a single moment, when we're sitting here, for example, first to see whether we can be clear as to the difference between reacting and responding, what that feels like in the body. And once we've identified something as a reaction, as a reactive pattern, to let go of it, to not get caught up in it, to just see it for what it is, to let itself play itself out. Reactivity is not to be abandoned or rejected or suppressed, but just seen for what it is as the habitual play of the mind. So we see it, we observe it, and we notice how it will fizzle out, if not acted upon. Whereas if we feel or sense uh, that what's arising in our experience at that moment is a non-reactive response of kindness, of wisdom, of clarity, of compassion, then that's something we consciously choose to nurture, to develop, to celebrate, to honor. It brings us a certain dignity, a certain um, uh, sense of of, of goodness, really, of engaging with the world and our lives uh, in a more ethical way, in other words, in a way that corresponds to the sort of person we aspire to be. So let's see if we can use this retreat as an opportunity to to fine tune our awareness of this distinction. Um, In such a way that as we uh, then leave the formal sitting and go into Um, let's say, our work or our eating or our discussion groups, uh, that we keep that sense alive and see how, in practice, we may come to embody uh, those values, uh, those experiences, to translate what we feel here on the cushion with how we respond to our situations in relationships and the world. Um, I've spoken for longer than I intended to, as usual, uh, but uh, we have uh, a few minutes. If, if, we, if there are some questions that you'd like to uh, raise, I may answer them now, or I'll pick them up and, and develop them later. Yes? And Stephen, what, um, what word do you translate as care? Care, upamada And what's the broader meaning of that word? The broader meaning is care. I think what you're asking is, how is it usually translated? (laughs) It's usually translated as heedfulness, diligence, vigilance. That's the usual translation. I don't find that's very um, helpful. Um, I got my cue for this in a translation into German uh, by a a German Buddhist scholar called Ernst Steinkelner who translated Appamada as Vahsama Zorge, wakeful care. Um, and I find it works very well in um, the contexts in which the term is used, both in the early discourses as well as in later Mahayana writings. Um, yeah, so... I'm probably not. It's not usual to hear it translated as care, but to be quite honest, I'm a little getting a little bit fed up with having to back up what I say by providing a Pali term. Um, <laughs> the, the, the the notion of care is either a valuable way of um, developing our practice or not. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. So my question is, um, where does the secular Buddhists get their motivation from, especially uh, people such as ourselves who have pretty much everything we mm-hmm. need? And also, what provoked Siddhartha Gautama to follow uh, the path of practice? That's a very simple answer to that. Um, Buddhism is interested in all kinds of grandiose schemes like becoming enlightened or a bodhisattva or whatever. Um, the Buddha, as we know at least from the legend, um, was actually motivated by uh, how do I come to terms with birth, sickness, aging, and death? The prince in the palace goes outside the palace walls, encounters a dead person, old person, sick person. That's what those experiences, those fundamental existential human conditions were what gave rise to him uh, the notion of, well, what what does it mean to live if I will fall sick, if I will grow old, and I will die? How do I come to terms with that? I would use the expression, come to terms with. So the, when, at a certain point in your life, um, you, 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 have, you may have a, a, a shocking experience, a close per, someone close to you dies or whatever, or you come close to death yourself. It's those experiences that then wake you up to the fact of your own contingency, your own impermanence, your own mortality, and likewise that of all living beings. And if that engages you as a, as a question, that you can no longer refuse to address. You embark on a way of life in which you seek to live in a way in which you come to terms with those conditions. And um, <clears throat> I would, you can extend that simply across the board to the notion of suffering. That what prompts you to practice is your encounter with suffering. But as an empathetic being, those moments in your life when you uh, find yourself confronting uh, the suffering of another in the same breath as you realize that the other is just like me. There is no difference. That his or her pain and fear and longing and anguish is just like my pain, fear, longing, and anguish. And the foundation of Buddhist ethics is not the law of karma, which was the Indian framework for morality. But the foundation of Buddhist ethics, I would identify with a a passage in the Sutta Nipata, which is a very early text, which which goes, just as I am, so are they. Just as they are, so am I. Considering myself as the other, I will not kill or cause to kill. So the foundation of an ethical life is effectively empathetic identification with the other's suffering. And a commitment, and that commitment is further rooted in your own recognition, existential recognition of your, sick, of your, your mortal condition. That's what motivates you to practice. You don't need anything else. The Buddha didn't need anything else. It's good enough. That sounds like a good place to start. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.